Greetings. My name is Dr. Sekou Franklin, the president of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. In this episode of the Freedom Plow podcast, I interviewed Dr. Michelle Boyd, an award-winning writer and scholar, a writing coach, and the founder of Inkwell Academic Writing Retreats. Dr. Boyd spent the first part of her career studying the political significance of black racial identity. In 2008, her book, Jim Crow Nostalgia, Reconstructing Race in Bronzeville, won a Best Book Award from the American Political Science Association. Now Dr. Boyd spends the majority of her time as the director of Inkwell, where she specializes in helping stuck and scared scholars free themselves from fear and build a satisfying and sustainable writing practice. Dr. Boyd has helped hundreds of scholars from all ranks and disciplines move past their anxieties, reconnect with their writing, and develop a calmer, more confident, and more productive writing practice. In this episode of The Freedom Plow, I interviewed Dr. Boyd about the objectives of academic writing retreats and how they can help social scientists become better and productive scholars. Okay, so um, uh, I uh, I heard you I heard you on a panel years ago, right when your book was coming out on Bronzeville, and um, mm-hmm. it was a kind of a widely acclaimed book, I think, on urban politics and and I think displacement and gentrification. Um, so you you experienced the success, the success in the academy, but you made the transition out of the academy. Um, so so why did you do that? <laughs> That's a great question, which I get a lot. Um, you know, not for the typical reasons I think people leave. I loved my department. Uh, I was part of the African American Studies Department at UIC and just surrounded by incredible colleagues and friends who were doing fantastic scholarship and activism and art. Um, I think by the time that I got tenure, a couple things became clear to me. One was that this picture of an easier, sort of more relaxed um, professional life after tenure that I had uh, had painted for me by others when I was a junior faculty member, um, that that wasn't exactly true. Uh, I started asking around, in particular I was asking um other women and women of color, what their life was like after tenure, and what I kept hearing over and over again was um, that it was actually more stressful, that there was more service, that they felt more overburdened, and um, that was not what I was looking for. Um, And I think probably the second thing was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was pretty burnt out. You know, I... um, I did all the things that I was supposed to do to get tenure and, you know, um, to produce a book that I could feel proud of. Um, but they took a toll, and it wasn't until I'd gotten tenure that I was able to really see that and feel that. Um, yes. And I knew that I needed to do something differently, but I didn't know what. Um, and then the third thing was... When I did get tenure, I started, um, I took an um, administrative position in an institute that focuses on race and public policy, and as part of that work, 
uh, a colleague and I started offering writing retreats for graduate students focusing on dissertations um, on race and ethnicity. And I was doing a lot of reading about the craft of writing and the process of writing at that time. And so um, my sort of, um, my interest in, in how you go about the work of writing dovetailed with this program that we were offering. And I just loved it. I loved it. I was very good at it. Um, I was, I thought it was going to be a one-off thing. Uh, where people would come to retreat and get a little bit done, and I realized that people were actually taking back the things that I was offering them as I was coaching them during the retreat and using them in their day-to-day writing life. And so those things came together so that I was at a point where all I wanted to be doing was coaching people in their writing. (laughs) And, uh, you know... When I, I was frustrated when I didn't have enough time to do that, I was frustrated by the other things I needed to do as a faculty member. So I realized I needed to make a change. Did, did so you, that's how that happened. Did you, um, this is going to sound maybe perhaps generic, but did you take any courses on writing or did you, how did you develop your own um, writing expertise such that it can translate to others? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it's generic at all. So, one thing that happened is that when I was in my second year as a junior faculty member, I became a part of a writing group, and that had a really big influence on me. I had never done that before. I had been a binge writer um, up until that time, so the idea of writing regularly every day was new to me then, um, and it was helpful because it introduced me to a set of ideas about writing um, that I had not encountered before. Um, and then the second thing that happened was that, that there, when, I, when, I, um, when I started getting interested in the process of writing, I realized there was a, there's a vast literature on writing that's produced by cognitive psychologists and people who study creativity and, uh, you know, it's just <laughs> productivity. It's all out there. I was appalled that there are all these scholars who understand what the process is like, but none of that ever gets translated to us in graduate training or even when we're junior faculty members. So at that point, I was not taking courses at all. It really was a combination of my own experience um, in writing accountability groups along with the literature that sort of helped me understand not just how to be more productive, because everyone is very obsessed with being productive. I'm not obsessed with productivity. I'm obsessed with uh, people feeling a sense of satisfaction and progress in their work and in moving past their writing fears. So there's a ton of work out there, and and it was a combination of my personal experience and my finding this literature that literally gives us all the answers we need <laughs> about how to deal with the barriers of writing, but that no one is talking about. Did you face any stigma transitioning from the academy to the to the to to this writing uh, retreat profession in terms of like people are saying, "Hey, why are you leaving the academy and doing this work?" <laughs> well, I think it it didn't come out quite as um, harshly as that. How it came out was, for example, when I first. Um, sort of realized that I needed to do something different. I had a very 
I sort of reached an, an end point, and I actually applied for a job, um, not as a faculty member, but as um, a career counselor at another institution in Chicago working with social scientists, not because that was what I wanted to do, but because I just felt that I needed to leave. I just needed to have um, another way of making a living um, because I felt that urgency. Um, and so when I, and I did this without speaking to my department head and my, my dean because my assumption was that when they found out that I was having these feelings that they would immediately dismiss me and think that I wasn't worth keeping in the department. And I also wasn't trying to negotiate for anything. Um, so when I did finally talk to them about this, it wasn't stigma so much as complete shock. I mean, people just literally did not understand. I had a very smooth uh, tenure case. You know, my book was doing, you know, pretty well, and I won an award for it, and I won multiple awards and uh, for the writing that was related to that book, and it, it just didn't make sense to people, and I think they had a really hard time understanding what I was doing. And the other way that it comes out is people will say things to me like, oh, I'm, it's so such a shame that we've, we've lost you um, from academia. And I think that that's because, you know, when you're a faculty member, and I was the same way, you have a pretty narrow definition of what it means to be part of academia or what it means to be a scholar, and that really is that you're at a research one university mm -hmm. um, producing research. But one of the things that I had to sort of decide about myself when I left was, was I going to continue to refer to myself as a scholar and it took me several months to figure this out, and I realized that I, I do still consider myself a scholar because I am still engaged in um, thinking about the world in a systematic way, um, and that doesn't change because I'm not a faculty member anymore. So it's more about narrow thinking than it is about people saying to me, I can't believe, you know, you're going to do that worthless thing. If anything, I also got a lot of, people saying to me when I announced that I was leaving my institution that they wished that they could leave too. So, okay. so you, you established uh, um, the Inkwell Academic Writing Retreat. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious the name. Where did you get the name from? You know, I, I, that also took me a little bit of time and it, I, I just, I knew that I was wanted to be focused on, um, again, not just productivity, but how to experience the joy and the satisfaction of writing again, because that was something that I felt that I had lost <clears throat> when I was a graduate student and a faculty member. I loved to write when I was younger, and I completely forgot that. And so I knew that I wanted the name to convey that, that sense of writing as something that could actually be a refuge and a source, something that you go back to because it fills you up and it gives you satisfaction. And um, so I think the, the thing about the word inkwell is, is that there's, you know, multiple meanings of the word well there. It's both, the, you know, the source for your pen, it's the source for your own life, um, but it's also about having a healthy orientation to writing instead of one that sort of grinds you down. So a lot of people have asked me if it has to do with uh, uh, is there a place in Mar Martha's Vineyard? Is that where it is? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, but, but my family was not, uh, <laughs> we were not uh, mm-hmm. uh, a Martha's Vineyard family. That was not what we, um, what we <laughs> how, 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 what our lives are like. Mm-hmm. So no, unrelated. Okay. Um, so just in terms of getting started um, and transitioning from the academy to the starting Inkwell, what kind of resources and infrastructure did it take did it, to get to get started? What did you have to think about in terms of raising funds, revenue, finding uh, places where people to meet? What was that process? Yeah. So I guess there are probably sort of two aspects to that. One was um, just what it would take to start a, a business. And that I was able to do without um, taking out any loans because when I first started, I, and really to this day, I offer uh, private coaching and I also run the retreats. And so um, it's, it's, there's, it's a fairly uh, low uh, entry barrier to starting as a coach um, because I could work from home. I didn't have to have an office. Um, so I was able to do that um, pretty easily. I, I borrowed a little bit of money from our household in order to set that up. Um, and I also, I guess I would say another part of that infrastructure um, included my connections um, with my friends and my colleagues um, who knew of other people who wanted writing retreats or needed writing coaching, um, and that I was able to, to access pretty easily. And then the, the third, I guess, sort of resource is, as you point out, having a space to have retreats. So having a venue, having um, a place that will offer food and support for technical um, issues. And that's actually something that um, it, it, it takes an, a ton of research. It takes a ton of experimentation. Um, I'm in two places that I'm delighted with now, but that was definitely something that I had to, um, I had to work really hard to find. And I also had to work hard to get to the point where I was very clear about what I would accept and what I would not accept in a venue, what they had to have in order for, um, you know, the scholars who come on my retreat to have the experience that I wanted them to have and the things that I would be willing to compromise on. So it's a ton of legwork. That's what I'll say. And your treats usually can last either one day or a week, if I'm not mistaken. And you also do online retreats. Is that is that correct? Exactly. So when I do a one-day retreat, I am going to a campus, so I'm not in charge of the venue at all. Um, but, of course, the five-day retreat, the signature retreat, um, Compose, is the one where I select the setting. Um, you know, I go, I visit them beforehand, I talk to the staff. You know, I see how the um, how does the cleaning staff get treated? What's the food taste like? What's the space like? Do I feel safe as a woman of color having to drive to this place? There are a ton of things to, to think about. And then the online retreats, of course, that just happens online. So <clears throat> I don't have those same concerns okay um i was going to ask you uh just a couple of um given your retreats just a couple of uh, tips that you can offer and maybe offer some kind of leading questions or concerns for for writers that you're that you're coaching what do you tell them about perfection i know a lot of writers want to be perfect in what they produce and the perfection oftentimes 
uh, causes them to delay completing writing projects. Do you address issues such as that in terms of writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess what I would tell them is perfection is the death of your writing, okay. <laughs> if I had to put it, you know, shortly. And that the better way to think about it is, I think, two things that you want to bear in mind. One, what do you need to do to make progress? And progress looks different from day to day, from hour to hour even sometimes, um, from project to project. But what moves people forward and what keeps people motivated, not just in writing, but in, um, in most work, uh, we know from the research is when people are able to make progress on a meaningful task. That deepens your sense of satisfaction and it makes you excited about coming back to the task. So rather than making something perfect, you know, I really strongly urge people to think about how to make meaningful progress and to really see that progress. Um, and the one way that we know uh, helps us to make progress consistently and in a way that, that it's impactful for us is to follow our own unique writing process. So. Okay. Writing process is nothing more than the steps that you take from getting an idea in your head to words on the page. <clears throat> and we all go through a similar set of stages, but what we do in any particular stage is different from one another. Um, so if I'm trying to, you know, um, <clears throat> organize my ideas, maybe I use a mind map, maybe I outline, maybe I speak out loud to a recorder, there's a hundred different ways you can do that. And if you try to do things the way that other people do them because they say that's the way to do them, you'll get stuck. Mm -hmm. But if you honor your own process, you are better able to make progress that feels meaningful and to really hang on to that rather than trying to make everything perfect. Um, how, how, do, how do writers, particularly in the academy, get, get through harsh criticisms, for example, through peer reviews and those kinds of things. I know that oftentimes that could be demoralizing, especially for younger <laughs> scholars emerging. What do you what do you tell younger scholars? How do you push past that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's definitely um, something that, you know, we all get better at over time. Nobody ever wants to um, get negative criticism about their work. Um, but I think one of the key skills that I really try to help people cultivate at Compose is to be able to separate who they are from the work that they do. Um, and there are lots of ways that you do that. You know, everything I talk about is has a mechanical, you know, sort of a, like logistical aspect to it. So if you get... Um, even if you get good feedback about your work, but um, especially if you're getting um, somewhat harsh uh, feedback, um, literally doing something like making a list of the proposed changes or the things that um, uh, the reviewer thinks are problematic um, is one way that you can, in a very practical way, just sort of break down everything that they've said and make it manageable, right? So you separate um, yourself from that whole sense of being criticized and translate things into tasks. So it can be very practical, but it can also have a more, um, I would say, emotional element to it. 
And separating yourself from the work means being able to depersonalize, being able to understand that the um, there are some there is some information and a criticism um, that is not about you and your personal work. And I think that separation of self um, from the work, but still caring about it, is one of the things we talk about it a lot and compose, and it's one of the the most difficult things for people to, you know, to really uh, get their minds around. Okay. What about, um, again, um, shedding skin, one skin a little bit, what about just the fear of uh, working on a topic that, a writer wants to work on, but is afraid to step out there and 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 really dive deep into that kind of research or writing for fear that they may get the story wrong. Um, do you deal with yeah. person's own fears of how do you push past and take and take risks in terms of writing and research? Absolutely, and I, you know, uh, part of how I talk about this is that um, people often engage in defensive writing. That is, we're writing not because we want to clarify what we think or explore our own ideas, or put a new idea down on paper, but we are writing in order to protect ourselves from the future criticism that we think that we're going to get. Um, it's something that I have experienced, I still experience now, um, and I hear a lot from from other scholars. And I think uh, one of the things we talk about in Compose is the importance of building a writing refuge. Okay. And a, a refuge really is um, a protected time, but also a protected place for your writing, a place where um, it feels safe to take risks, both intellectual risks and emotional risks. And far too often, what I notice is we just sort of plop down and um, think we're going to get into the writing without a full appreciation for how risky it feels and and how unsafe it can sometimes feel to do that at work. And so making sure that you have um, both a physical refuge and, uh, and a refuge for your attention so that, um, you know, disruptions and distractions or people that you find unsupportive are not coming into your space, that's probably one of the most important things you can do. It's actually... It, it, it seems like we overcome our writing fears in the moment that they come up, but there's a lot that we can do before we even sit down in a writing session to help insulate ourselves from the, the, the thoughts and the feelings that can, that can derail us. Would you consider, I know particularly for social scientists, who some of whom work with numbers and stats and so forth and quantitative work, and then... Um, and background reading, would you consider all that being part of the writing process, whether it be crunching numbers, reading for one's research, or is it just the pure writing, putting pen to paper? Would, would you consider all that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I, I would, here's everything that moves your um, thinking and your project forward counts as writing. So let me give you an example. I um, used to privately coach somebody who she couldn't start her chapters without her table. But that was the way she started. She didn't outline first. She didn't free write. She had her tables. And she, uh, I, if I'm remembering correctly, she would sort of uh, write the, um, 
data analysis section first, and then she could go back and work on the other sections. And so, um, for her, if she were to try to sit down and write without having those tables, nothing was going to happen. And so, it meant that sometimes her writing time was taken up with data analysis or rerunning, you know, something. And so, yes, definitely. I, it's hard for me to think about a task that wouldn't, that couldn't be counted as writing. And at the same time, it is also the case that we can sometimes use those uh, tasks as a way to avoid our writing. So the, the trick is um, not to, not that some things count and some things don't, but to be aware of what did you mean to get done in this writing session and how is what you're doing right now helping move you forward? Are you avoiding um, or are you actually engaging? And that is, the, that is the answer to whether or not we should be engaged in a certain task during our writing section, session. Do, do, you, does, does, do you, through Inkwell Retreats, um, I, I've read that you coach people who, are, who study physics, astronomy, social scientists. So you, do, you do fiction, nonfiction, and different kind of disciplines as well in terms of coaching? So I actually have never had any um, fiction writers in my retreats, except for, you know, people who, you know, um, do that for fun on the side. But um, they would certainly be welcome. And because Inkwell's retreats are focused on helping people overcome the internal writing barriers that we all face, um, it doesn't matter what discipline you're in. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, your methods. We're not sharing work. Uh, we really are talking about that voice that comes up and says that you can't do it or it's not legitimate for you to even uh, write this idea out because someone hasn't said it before or, you know, your tendency to get on Facebook when you know you should be writing. Those are the kinds of things that we we talk about. And, you know, in particular, there are um, uh, a lot of people of color, mostly women of color, who come to my retreats. And so, also, those fears that are not, um, that they're, they are internal, but they're internalized, right? It's, um, uh, it is the, the voice that um, is the internal expression of um, an external judgment that, that, that we're worried about because we're operating in a hostile institution. So, okay. those things come up whether you're an astronomer or an English prof, you know? <laughs> so, that's what we focus on and that's why I'm able to work with such a broad range of, of scholars. Um, how do you, um, and I have a half, just a, a few more questions, but um, sure. how do you, how do you help scholars deal with writing and just the rat race of life? Um, uh, yeah. Getting, getting food on the table, getting kids out the house, um, uh, taking uh, care of sick parents, for example, um, and, you know, and, and then you got that conference paper <laughs> that has to be submitted. Yeah. How, how do you how do you manage all of that? And it doesn't get any easier when you get older, contrary to what no. it gets it gets much harder. Along with you know some community, community demands where people some people in the community may reach out to you for various assistance because of maybe your pedigree or whatever. So how do you how do you yeah. how do you help folks get through that in terms of writing? Do they yeah. a day? Do you tell them to schedule it? Like it's uh, exercise or working out or what's your yeah. one or two tips? Yeah. So, you know, you will often hear that you, and I agree with this, that you need to schedule your writing time. And I think 
what's missing from that piece of advice is that um, scheduling your writing time doesn't necessarily help you fit it into the rest of your life. And so one of the things that we do, we do it at the retreat, and then um, when I work with alumni uh, um, in private coaching, we do this at the level of the semester, is that um, we really take the time to create what I call a foundation calendar. This is a calendar that's sort of a template for what your week will look like, and it doesn't just include your writing time, and it doesn't just include class, but it actually includes all the different aspects of your life that you want to engage in at that moment, you know, in that semester. And um, I will tell you, this can be an incredibly stressful <laughs> exercise for people when they first start it, because what you eventually find out is all the things you want to do don't fit. Okay. And you have to figure out, you know, how how can I have this template, this vision of what my ideal life looks like, and writing actually fits into it instead of crashing up against something else, and I'm always having to, you know, skip the writing or feel guilty because I'm not spending time with my kids. <clears throat> and so um, we really work on clarifying what what your purpose is for that semester, not just for a writing project, not just for your career, but really what what your what do you really want out of that time? Um, and then fitting things together so that you have adequate amounts of time for all the things that do matter and that you cut out the things that don't. So that's one thing. Um, but then I maybe even even more important thing and more specific to the writing is. Um, I really encourage scholars I work with to be very clear about what their own standard of quality work looks like. Okay. Because there's always going to come a point where we have to, uh, we have to submit the work. Okay. And it's usually before <laughs> we are, we feel that we've done everything that needs to be done. <clears throat> and so when you are clear about what constitutes good work in this case, um, whether it's a conference paper or it's a, a, you know, a first draft to a colleague or, um, you know, something that you're sharing with, with a, a, a co-PI, we, we actually have pretty clear ideas of, about what would look like good work given where we are in this stage of the manuscript, but we don't think about that very explicitly. And so really encouraging people to come up with an, an idea of what that looks like and then using that as the measure of what gets cut. Um, you, it, it's, it's shocking how clear it becomes what can be left out if you're very clear on what you want the paper to do and what you think good work looks like at that moment. Are, are they attending a retreat with a draft document in hand of what they want to work on or are they coming in without anything or just some ideas? What, what do you, what do you yeah, think? that's a great question. So I encourage people to come with whatever work is giving them the most trouble. What do they find most challenging? Because what we do each day is um, we have a workshop in the morning where I talk about a particular technique, and then they practice that technique throughout the rest of the day. And then at the end of that day, in the evening uh, coaching session, we we talk about how it went, we troubleshoot, I give them additional coaching. So each day you're learning something new, and each day you have time to practice it, and each day you have time to reflect on your own and with others about how things went and how you can improve. And so it's great if you 
you know, choose something that's easy for you, you're going to make a lot of progress. But if you really want to master the skills that we cover in the retreat, it helps to come with something that you're feeling uneasy about. You know that you tend to avoid uh, something where you have a lot of baggage around it. Those are the most fruitful um, projects to bring to a retreat. And when they leave the retreat, I assume they're leaving with a skill set, or at least how to put together that foundational calendar and how to move forward in terms of the skill set. Because sometimes people leave retreats and they don't they don't take what they learn with them, and it goes back to business as usual. So how do you make sure that people take what they learn in the retreat, and stick with it? Yeah, that is a great question. So yes, they are leaving with a skill set, but. I would say even more than that, they really have a step-by-step system for moving through a writing session. So from beginning to end, what does that look like? What should you be doing first? What should you do when you get distracted? How do you close out your session in a way that makes you want to come back? Um, And so they have both the skills that we cover each day as well as a template document that they can use to move through every single session, not just the ones. Um, you know, when they're with everyone else in a retreat with the guidance of a coach. So I don't feel like I've I've achieved what I wanted if people leave without a sense that, hey, I have not just one or two things, but a, but a really a step-by-step system in my back pocket that I can pull out when I, you know, I leave the retreat on Saturday and I sit down in my office to write on Monday. I know exactly how to move through that, that session. Okay, thank you. Um, my last question for you is, um, it sounds like that, that Inkwell Academic Writing Retreats, what you're trying to encourage is that writing doesn't have to be this hostile, hyper-competitive process, that um, it can maybe even be a, a pathway or a form of maybe self-care, maybe that's maybe, maybe I'm going too far with that, but, um, <laughs> but it's, or maybe even a, a spiritual a spiritual exercise, even that oftentimes um, is buried by the, by the traditional academy. So, can you talk about about that in in the last comment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I don't think that uh, the the language you were using was uh, sort of out of scope. I think you know lots of people have talked about the problem with the concept of self-care so if we <clears throat> take it in its most useful and um, um, powerful way not in the way that it, it can be you know adapted and adopted by uh, by those who don't have our interest at heart um, I would definitely say that that the that inkwell's purpose is to help people recover the the joy of writing and to approach it in a way that um, is intentional and integrated into life rather than as one that um, compounds their suffering. Writing is hard. It's always hard. And it almost always involves a struggle, but it does not have to involve suffering. And the I think part of the reason that it often feels like that's the only way to experience writing is because we haven't gotten any training in how to do it differently. And so Inkwell is about being intentional about your writing um, and about being intentional about building a writing life, really. That, that writing has to fit into a bigger life that we 
love and that we care about. I, you know, it's funny, even though I left my job okay. um, as a faculty member, I, I really feel that being a scholar is one of the best things that you can do with your life. I, I just, it has so much, um, I just think that the work that we do as scholars is so important. I feel kind of cheesy saying this out loud, but this is what I really feel. It's like the best way that you could spend your life. And and our institutions are not designed to help us build a satisfying, joyful writing life. And if we want to do that, we are going to have to um, behave oppositionally to our institutions. They are never going to create a space for us to be creative, to us to work um, out of joy instead of competition and fear. Universities are businesses, and they are trying to um, encourage their workers, who are scholars, yes. to create products. You know, and so we can't. We feel that we have to capitulate to that when we're junior faculty members. But the research shows us that there is a different way to approach the writing that will not only make your life more pleasurable, um, not only allow you to live your life with more intention, but in the end will also make you more productive. Um, so I really do, that is what I'm trying to help people not just see, um, but actually experience. That's the power of a retreat is that I can talk, I can say these things all day long. Um, but there is nothing like when someone comes to a retreat and they experience it for themselves and they see other people struggling and experiencing it. That has a transformative power that my words on their own are never going to have. Wow. Wow. Well, I appreciate the, uh, you giving us time. This conversation and commentary is very powerful. Yeah. A lot of wisdom that you shared. And I think it's going to be useful not just for junior faculty but also for tenured faculty and senior scholars as well so thank you for giving us your time oh thank you i was so delighted um to do it it was just such a great it was fun for me and it was it was um it was great to connect with you so thank you so much for you know for asking me and having me it was a delight thank you